We must not harbor a grudge. We must not nurse a feeling of resentment and anger and bitterness for what that person has done. And we must not retaliate. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. When your personal dignity is attacked, how should you as a Christian respond? How should you treat the government and other authorities who you might disagree with? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part four of a series titled, An Eye for an Eye. We're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at how Jesus calls his followers to live in light of oppression. Today, Tom will continue to examine just how believers are supposed to respond when their personal dignity is attacked. You'll discover today that when it comes to responding to being slandered, lied about, mistreated, and abused, there's no greater example than Jesus Christ. Is He your example? Let's join our teacher now for more of his series here on The Word Unleashed. Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist, he explains how he came to believe it was wrong for a Christian to resist evil violently in any way. For Tolstoy, this meant that no Christian could serve in the army, no Christian could be a policeman, And he even wrote that no Christian should serve anywhere in the judicial system because it is a party to violence against fellow human beings. Tolstoy's writings heavily influenced another major figure of the 20th century who didn't claim to be Christian. His name was Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. He sort of took this basic teaching of Jesus and blended it with his own religions and other things he had absorbed. But he said of this passage, quote, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, end quote. But Gandhi believed in non-resistance to such an extent that it was ridiculous. Listen to what he said to the British people in 1940 when they were facing the onslaught of the Blitzkrieg and and the, the attack on Britain, the Battle of Britain. Here's Gandhi, quote, I would like you to lay down the arms you have as being useless for saving you or humanity. You should invite Herr Hitler and Signor Mussolini to take what they want of the countries you call your possessions. If these gentlemen choose to occupy your homes, you will vacate them. If they do not give you free passage out, you will allow yourselves, man, woman, and child, to be slaughtered, end quote. That's non-resistance. And that's not what this passage is teaching, as we'll see in a moment. Most Christians don't go to non-resistance, but there are many Christians who take these words as Christian passivism. Christian passivism. For the Christians, and perhaps you have embraced passivism, or you know someone who has, or something you've been influenced by in the past. For the Christians who hold this view... It dictates that the Christian must never engage in killing of any kind, but especially in warfare. This was the view, by the way, of the Anabaptists during the Reformation, and it's still the view of some Christians today. The question for us is, how do we know that this passage is not teaching either non-resistance or passivism? How do we know that? 
But let me back up and remind you of the bigger picture. We would all agree that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. It is the product of the breath of God. That means it all comes from one source, and collectively it is true and internally consistent. Practically, that means Scripture never contradicts Scripture. So when we look at a passage to interpret it, One of the first things we can say is if the interpretation we think is right contradicts the Scripture elsewhere, we know it can't be the right interpretation because that's not how Scripture works. That means we can clearly rule out both the interpretation of non-resistance as well as passivism from Matthew 5. Why? Well, because both of those interpretations, both of those views, contradict other passages of Scripture. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here, but I just want to ease your mind on this. So let me make a couple of quick points. Point number one, Scripture allows true believers in the true God to be soldiers. Scripture allows true believers to be soldiers. You see that, obviously, in the Old Testament, but you might argue, well, that's because it was the army of Israel and they were under specific orders. Okay, so what about the New Testament? Well, in Luke chapter 3, verse 14, and you can turn there or not, but let me just read it to you. Luke chapter 3, verse 14, John the Baptist is baptizing. He's calling people to a baptism of repentance, to prepare for the Messiah. Messiah's coming. You need to repent. You need to prepare. You need to have a proselyte baptism as if you weren't a Jew because you're so far from what God intended you to be. And people came out in droves to be baptized by John and repented. And verse 14 of Luke 3 says some soldiers came. These would have been Roman soldiers. Some soldiers came questioning John the Baptist. And they were saying, what about us? What shall we do? That is, what shall we do to demonstrate the fruit of repentance? We want to be prepared for the Messiah. How do we do that? What does that look like in our case? Now, if John the Baptist were a pacifist, this would have been a perfect place for him to say, well, there's only one thing you can do. You have to get out of the military because you cannot take another human life in military combat. But that's not what he says. What he says is, do not take money from anyone by force. In other words, don't use your position of authority for extortion or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Ouch. From the time of Augustine until today, most Christians have embraced Augustine's idea of a just war. That's a different message for a different time. But the bottom line is, most Christians have agreed with what I've just shared with you, that Christians, that believers are allowed to be soldiers. Secondly, Christians are allowed by Scripture to engage in self-defense, even deadly self-defense the use of deadly force in the defense of your person and your life. Obviously, we would all agree that we can practice self-defense by running, by fleeing. And sometimes that's the better part of wisdom. You see this in the Old Testament. You see this in 1 Samuel 19.10. David eluded Saul's attempt to pin him to the wall with a spear by fleeing. Three times in Jesus' ministry, we're told that the crowd wanted to seize him or kill him, and he escaped from them. The implication is he miraculously escaped from them because it wasn't yet his time. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes the time when, when they wanted to seize him and kill him in Damascus, and the disciples let him down by a basket out of the window, a window in the wall so he could be saved. So we would all agree that you can defend yourself by fleeing. But what about the use of deadly force? Well, the Scripture affirms that as well in both Testaments. Again, I won't have you turn there, but jot them down, read them on your own, study them. In the Old Testament, Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. In the law, the, the scenario is drawn up. What if you're at home sleeping, it's nighttime, and someone breaks into your house? And by the way, the law was different during the daytime because you were in a better position to assess the danger that person was, what weapon they have, and how seriously you might be harmed. But at nighttime, you're awakened in the confusion of that. You don't know what he intends to do. The assumption is there's, there may be the, the idea of violence implied. And so the Old Testament law in Exodus 22 says, if that happens at night, then you may use deadly force and take that person's life. What about the New Testament? Well, and again, I challenge you to study it and read it, but Luke 22 verses 36 to 38. In that passage, Jesus is sending his disciples out again, and he says to them, unlike before when I sent you out, this time I want you to take money, and I want you to take a a knapsack, I want you to take staff, and I want you to take a sword. Now there's some debate among scholars about whether he meant a literal sword or not. doesn't really change the point. His point is, You're going to have to protect yourself. Be prepared to do it. I think he means a literal sword because everything else in that section is literal. And so I think not necessarily a sword in, you know, kind of the broadsword sense. Maybe it was more like a knife. But the point is, be prepared to defend yourself. And with a weapon like that, it was intended that that would be deadly force. Thirdly, the Scriptures allow believers to submit to and respect the use of force by government. And I think, therefore, even allows by extension Christians to be involved in government and in the use of force by government. God has given government the authority to use force to apprehend and punish criminals. Read Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul says God has given government the sword to punish evildoers. You don't slap someone's hand with a sword. It was intended as an instrument of death, of execution. Paul was saying God has allowed government to use deadly force to punish criminals. And so it's perfectly acceptable for Christians to serve in that field. So, Jesus' command then to turn the other cheek is not a command to embrace non-resistance or passivism. This passage has nothing to do with whether or not a Christian should be involved in the military or in government. It's not even dealing with the question of self-defense. It's about personal revenge. So let's look then at what this passage does mean. Verse 39 again. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek. That expression is referring to a specific cultural circumstance. The Greek word for slaps means to strike someone with an open hand. In Jewish thinking, to slap someone was an insult. And there are countless, not countless, there are many examples of this. Uh, you can go back and look at them. 1 Kings twenty-two twenty-four, Job 16, 10. Lamentations 3, 20 speaks 
of giving your cheek to be slapped and therefore being filled with reproach. The word for slaps can mean either with the palm of the hand or the back of the hand. Stay with me, though. This is important. Since 90% plus of the people on the planet are right-handed, and Jesus specifically says that this person strikes you on your right cheek, he is probably not describing a situation where a right-handed person awkwardly tries to slap someone with the palm of his left hand. That's a very awkward motion for most people. Most, most people are right-handed. That's not a common motion. And so, almost certainly then, Jesus is describing a backhanded slap with the right hand across the right cheek. Now, why is that important? Because in the Jewish culture of the first century, to slap someone with the back of your hand was not primarily about inflicting personal injury, but making a personal insult. In fact, it was such a serious insult that the Jewish Mishnah said that if someone slapped you with the back of their hand, you could take them to court. And if they were proven guilty in court for having done that, they could be fined up to more than a year's wages. It's interesting, too, in the Mishnah, it says that if a person slapped you with the palm of their hand, that was only a half year's wages. But if they slapped you with the back of their hand, that was more than a year's wages because it was considered an extreme insult. So to be backhanded on your right cheek was to be grossly and intentionally insulted. Your personal dignity and honor had been violated. Now, most of us don't walk around getting slapped as an insult, but there are different forms that we are all too familiar with in our culture. Most of the insults we experience are verbal. Occasionally obscene gestures and other things. We know what it means to be insulted. So how should we as Christians respond when we are insulted? Look at verse 39 again. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now again, understand, this is not about defending yourself or those you love from physical harm or death. We've already dealt with that. This is about how to respond when you are insulted. When your personal dignity is attacked, how should you as a Christian respond? Jesus says, don't return the slap. Don't slap him back. Instead, turn the other cheek. Let me me tell you exactly what Jesus is saying in simple terms. He is saying, don't return insult for insult. That's what he's saying. Don't pay back personal violations of your own dignity by returning equal insults, or more likely, as it usually happens, escalating insults to the one who sinned against you. Don't defend your honor by responding in kind. Jesus' point in this first example is crystal clear. He's saying, don't harbor grudges Don't pursue personal revenge when someone violates your personal dignity. William Hendrickson writes, To turn the other cheek means to show in attitude, word, and deed 
that one is filled not with the spirit of rancor, but the spirit of love. Here's what Jesus is saying. Let me put it to you in the simplest terms. Jesus is saying we should be willing to be insulted again, if necessary, rather than returning the insult. We should be willing to be insulted again rather than returning the insult. John Stott writes, in each of the four situations, Jesus said our Christian duty is so to completely forbear revenge, so completely to have nothing to do with revenge, that we even allow the evil person to double the injury, end quote. This is really what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. Turn over there with me. Romans chapter 12. This is kind of his commentary on our Lord's words. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But, regardless of what happens, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. You know what God is saying? I'm the only one that can carry out righteous revenge. It belongs to me. Keep your hands out of it. I will repay, says the Lord. So how do we respond? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In other words, think instead of returning the insult, how you can do good to that person. And he says, in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't mean this is just another way to get even. He's saying, by doing the right thing, what you do will become burning conviction and he'll feel the weight and guilt of his sin when you just do the right thing. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, folks, when you are insulted, and, and let's think about this for a moment. For most people, where do their, the insults most frequently come from? From their circle. For some of you, it's in your home, from your spouse, or from your child, or from your parent. And if you're the insulter, understand how serious this is to God. But if you're the one receiving the insults, don't respond in kind. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in your extended family. Maybe there are people who aren't Christians who ridicule you and insult you for your faith. Maybe it's in the workplace where people resent your attempts to work hard and do the right thing and they insult you in various ways. Maybe it's at school. Jesus is saying, when we are insulted, we must not harbor a grudge. We must not nurse a feeling of resentment and anger and bitterness for what that person has done. And we must not retaliate. We must not retaliate even in our minds and hearts. You know, there are people who never carry out their revenge, but spend their lives thinking it up. We're not even to retaliate in that way. And how do we most normally retaliate when our personal dignity is attacked? With more insults. We respond in kind. Well, 
you say that to me. Well, let me tell you what I think of you. Well, listen to this. This person deserves some of what they're paying out. They deserve to feel the hurt that I've been hurt with. Jesus says, not if you're my disciple. Not if you belong to me. And we're not to pay back in our actions either. We must never respond with harboring a grudge or personal revenge. We must give up the desire to defend our dignity and to avenge ourselves when others injure it. And even when they do so sinfully, instead we must love them in response. That's the message of both Testaments. Leviticus 19.18, listen to it again. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, how can that be done? That is just so out of human character. The answer is by following the perfect example of our Lord. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 For you have been called for this purpose, Peter writes. In other words, you have been effectually called through the gospel, and here's one of the reasons. Since Christ also suffered for you, he left you an example to follow in his steps. In other words, part of the reason you've been called is to imitate Jesus Christ. You have, according to Romans 8, been predestined to be conformed to His image. God wants you to reflect His Son, even in those difficult relationships. You've been called for this purpose, to follow in His steps. Oh, and by the way, verse 22, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. In other words, He didn't deserve even a little bit of the insults He got. Some of the insults we get are totally wrong, but some of them have a little grain of truth in them. Not for Jesus. But how did he respond? Verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. You say, I don't think I can do that. I mean, how do you do that when someone's insulting you, when they're attacking you, when they're attacking your personal dignity? Here's how. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know how Jesus did it? He kept reminding himself that it wasn't his job to exact revenge. Instead, he kept reminding himself that there is a righteous judge, a righteous God on his throne, and vengeance belongs to him. He will repay where repayment is needed. And he kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So in light of that, go over to chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Turn the other cheek. When you are backhanded with an intentional insult, don't slap back. If necessary, take another insult. But instead, return good to that person. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You know what Peter's saying? Live up to your calling. You weren't called to grovel in insults like unbelievers do, or even perhaps like a sinning Christian around you is. 
Instead, be like Christ. And don't revile when you're reviled. Don't return insult for insult. But entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. He will vindicate you in His time. Maybe in this life, or maybe not till you stand in His presence. Follow the example of Christ. When your personal dignity is attacked, don't attack in return. If necessary, turn the other cheek and let another insult come. That's how those who belong to Jesus' kingdom live. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of An Eye for an Eye. Join us next time for part five, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.